going to read from the Gospel of John from chapter 6. It's a great chapter. It's long. So hang in there, listen, prick up your ears. John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they amongst so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they'd rowed about three or four hours, they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat and they were frightened but he said to them is I do not be afraid then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to where they were going on the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? 
Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may, so that, that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum.
Thank you so much, Gus. What a captivating passage. Provocative. We could mull over that for hours on end, actually. Since October, we've been looking at the gospel according to John. And John's gospel principally is concerned with this one question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Who do you say he is? And John presents to us the events of Jesus' life and the words that he said so that we may come to see that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world, the one who fulfills the Hebrew Scriptures and does so for the sake of all people, including you. Now, I wonder, can you think of any memorable meals in your life? I, I remember the first Big Mac I ever had. I was not much older than my friend Ella Newbold when I had my first Big Mac. It seemed like a mountain of tasty goodness to my little eyes, and it certainly felt like a mountain to my little mouth some 30 years ago. Andy Moffat, the greatest of all babysitters, bought me my first Big Mac when my parents were away and had no idea what he was doing. And from that moment on, a happy meal would never make me happy again. Big Mac Mike, from that moment on. Actually, it may just be me, but uh, lots of my memories have something to do with food. Um, And that's a silly story, but actually, this chapter just read out centers around one of the most memorable meals of all time. A A meal that involved so many people who would never stop talking about it from that day on that it's found its way into all four gospel accounts. And John tells us that what happened 2,000 years ago happened at Passover time. Now, that's no small detail, okay? John is drawing our attention to Passover themes that permeate the whole of this chapter. Now, Passover was the greatest of the Jewish festivals, a celebration of God's faithfulness in rescuing his people out of slavery and into freedom. Back then, God acted through a sacrificial lamb. He made a way through the waters as the Red Sea was parted for the people to walk through. He split the sea so I could walk right through it. And then he provided for his people bread from heaven, miracle bread called manna, to sustain them in the desert. And in the events that Gus just read out, we see Jesus at Passover doing just exactly what God does feeding people in the wilderness, making our way through the waters, and speaking of the true bread that comes down from heaven that will be given through sacrifice. Exodus imagery is everywhere. Not a word is wasted. It's packed full of meaning. It's very exciting. And so we're going to look at it together, okay? We're going to look at the sign, the waters, the bread, and the feeding. So firstly, the sign. Way over 5,000 people had gathered to Jesus on the mountain slopes by the Sea of Galilee, a kind of wilderness place. There were, we know, 5,000 men with women and children also. So there were, according to scholars, at least 15,000 people there. And they were hungry, hungry people. And Jesus cares about hungry people. God has always cared about the hungry. 
Food banks are, are not a modern idea. Feeding the hungry is just basic Christianity. God has always done it. But feeding these hungry people on the slopes of Galilee was a task way beyond human potential. 200 denarii would not give everyone even a bite to eat. That's like eight months worth of wages. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. And yet God usually chooses to involve frail humanity in achieving the impossible, in his miraculous works. On this occasion, a little boy with barley loaves and a few fish. This unknown boy gets caught up in the action of God to do something so incredible that we would not stop talking about it for 2,000 years. Never despise the littleness of what you have or of who you are. The Bible says God's power is made perfect in weakness. Are you weak? Then you are perfectly suited for the power of God. I am a weak man. I praise God that his power works through weakness. This boy's offering was very small. Barley loaves were actually the bread of the poor. But they also had a rich history in the life of Israel. You see, in 2 Kings chapter 4, you can read about the prophet Elisha multiplying 20 loaves of barley to feed a company of 100 people with leftovers. Another divine food bank for the hungry. A miraculous act of God's provision. It's what God does. But this little boy brought not only barley loaves, but also two fish. Now, the theologian James Jordan explains that in biblical imagery, land represents Israel and the sea represents Gentiles, the rest of the world. So here, Jesus takes the basic ingredients of the land and the sea to produce an abundance, the bread of the land, the fish of the sea, caught up in the wonderful provision of God because his grace extends to every tribe, to every family, to Jew and to Gentile. A new exodus was at work, and the Jewish Messiah is also the savior of the world. Nothing is by mistake. And everyone ate their fill on that mountainside. Twelve basketfuls left over, we're told. Nothing, nothing wasted. What a memorable meal. I guess it's hardly surprising that the people wanted to make Jesus their king, even by force. You see, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the people of Israel are promised another prophet will come like Moses, doing the things like Moses will do. And perhaps the people thought, this is it, he's here, and perhaps he will reign by force. A military leader conquering the world with the sword and signs and wonders. But what does Jesus do? He withdraws to the mountain. For his way of conquering the world would not be to slay with swords, but to save with sacrifice. Actually, what Jesus was about was drawing all people to a table of friendship to eat with him. Well, more on that in a while. This miracle meal for 5,000 was a sign. It was pointing to something. Next, we read about 
the water. When evening came, the disciples went to the sea, we're told. Now, the Sea of Galilee was a body of water about 13 miles wide and about seven miles wide. That's my kind of basic uh, assessment of that. And, And it sat in a deep basin in the Valley of Galilee, surrounded by hills. So it was prone to sudden strong winds. Maybe, who knows, Storm Chiara or someone like that. But sudden strong winds would come along because the cool air from the Mediterranean would come in from east to west and it would meet the hot air of the basin and that would cause storms to often come up. And the disciples, we're told, went out to sea and it was dark and the sea became rough with strong winds. And then suddenly the disciples are tossed around, threatened and uneasy. They've gone from the highs of the events of the day to the lows of the threat by night. Isn't that just life? Isn't that just life? Is that your experience of life? It's my experience. One moment everything is awesome, to quote the Lego movie. You know, colorful, super abundant. And the next minute, everything feels so threatening, out of control. And pretty soon, the highs of the morning are forgotten in the storm of the evening, and Abby King wrote a song that helped us to engage with that. The disciples here are just like us. Our worlds can seem so changeable. The highs of hope and the depths of despair often feel just a hair's breadth apart. And we know from the Gospel of Matthew that while the disciples took to the sea in the boat, Jesus was up on the mountain praying. He was enjoying the presence of his Father, the love that he had known from all eternity. And from that vantage point, he sees his disciples tossed around on the waves. Now, once again, it's helpful to understand something about biblical imagery as we interpret this report of real events. You see, in the Bible, the untamable waves of the raging seas are a picture of the powers of chaos that we often find ourselves surrounded by. Life can overwhelm, such that you feel at the mercy of hostile forces too chaotic to handle, like the turbulence of the sea. It is ironic that this is the day that we have a storm in the UK. Not often do we have that. But what does Jesus do as he sees his beloved disciples in a storm? Does he throw down some heavenly help from on high like an angelic life jacket for them just to cling on to? Now what he does is he joins them in the storm. He leaves his heavenly bliss and he enters into the chaos and the distress with them to be present. Emmanuel, God with us to lead to safety. Glenn Scrivener explains that in the picture language of Scripture, we're being taught that Christ treads on the abyss and that he's all over the powers of chaos. This is Exodus imagery again, the waters. The people of Israel were once surrounded on the shores of the Red Sea, danger behind them as the Egyptians came forward, danger ahead of them, all they could see was the waves, nowhere to go. But the Lord made a way where there was no way, leading them through hostile waters to dry land. And so, here, Jesus meets his people on the waters again. 
And when the disciples see him, they are terrified. You would be too. Someone's walking on water. According to Matthew's gospel, they think he's a ghost. But Jesus calms their fear with a word. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. A more literal translation would be, I am. Be not afraid. I am. I am is the name of God spoken to Moses at the burning bush. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 3. I am delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt with signs and wonders. The God of the burning bush was walking on the waters once again to be with his people in distress, speaking hope, leading them to safe shores. Can there be a sweeter sound than the voice of God saying, I am, be not afraid? He speaks that word still. I'm so encouraged by what came through in our worship time. This story is not a memoir, it is an announcement. God is not distant. You are not forgotten. He has come close in Christ. He comes close still, even in all your chaos. Be not afraid. Hear his voice. Let him in. John tells us that the disciples were glad to let Jesus into their battered boat when they heard his voice, and that suddenly they found themselves at the shore. What are we to make of that? Well, Peter Lightheart explains that it's as if the shore to which they are going is Jesus. When Jesus is there, they are safe. If he is there, they are in harbour. I don't know all of the details of your life at the moment. I do know that for some of you, life feels like a storm at the moment. Chaotic and out of control, threatening and overwhelming. More than you need anything today, you need to hear these words from your Lord. I am. Be not afraid. He is all over the powers of chaos. He is not watching ambivalently from on high to see how you'll get on. He is with you. He is for you. He is strong. He is good. You may feel surrounded on every side, but nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The word of God has a face, as Rich put it earlier. The face is that of Christ. God says through the prophet Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He's taken on flesh to bind himself to us. Who is Jesus? I am. Come to us in the waters of the storms of life. But what can we expect from him? Well, let's move on from the waters to the bread, shall we? You see, the next day, Jesus is found by some of the people that he fed with the loaves and the fish, and they're buzzing with the events of yesterday. You know, all that bread and all that fish. It was great. 
And they're still talking about it and they want more from him. And so they do find him. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus is saying to them, you experienced the miracle, but you've missed the point. Okay? They did not see the signs. All they saw was maybe opportunity, prosperity, a wonder worker who could make life a bit more comfortable, a bit easier, maybe give them some more stuff. They wanted more dazzlement, more fireworks, more here, more now. But they had missed what the loaves and the fish were all about. They are signs. Signs point to something. A sign never points to itself. You know, if you come across the sign to Cadbury World, you're not supposed to just sit under the sign as if you've arrived. Follow the sign and eat lots of chocolate. Birmingham's gift to the world. <laughs> These people thought that the sign was the reality. They thought the good stuff was all the miracles and the food and the circumstantial breakthrough. But on its own, that's just food that perishes. It doesn't last. The real thing is much better. How, how often do we chase after the food that perishes? Going to God for what he can do, but never for who he is. And if he doesn't do what you want, you go somewhere else to meet your need. A quick fix. Perhaps, you know... A, it would be different for each one of us. The internet, some, something, to, something that we're familiar with, maybe a relationship, maybe success, maybe some sort of reputation that we can forge. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this passage, says that many follow Christ for loaves, not for love. This is a slap in the face of the prosperity gospel. If your prayer life always resembles a shopping list, you may be chasing food that perishes and missing the real thing. If you only ever come to God for a breakthrough in your circumstances or a miracle in your finances or a need in your family or an intense spiritual experience of some description, but never just to be with him, you're missing out. You're missing the true food. You're chasing the food that perishes, choosing the miracles over the Messiah. Now, I need to be careful here. Okay, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying it's wrong to bring our needs to Jesus. Not at all. He cares for the hungry. He meets the needs of their bellies. He is healer. He is provider. He is waymaker. And breakthrough with miracles still happens today. He cares for all of our needs, including our physical and material. I daily bring my circumstances to him. And sometimes we do see miraculous breakthrough. They are signs. They're wonderful. But don't get so distracted by signs that you miss out on the reality to which they point. 
Tom Wright says, what matters is not what Jesus can do for you. What matters is who Jesus is. Only if you're prepared to be confronted by that in a new way can you begin to understand what he can really do for you, what he really wants to do, who he is. That's what matters. If you have been chasing after food that perishes, he simply doesn't want that for you because he's got something so much more. Who is he? He is like his father. God is giver. Jesus is giver. He gives abundantly, extravagantly, freely, with more than enough to go around. Remember the 12 baskets that were gathered up, nothing wasted. Remember, that's a sign. There's an abundance with him. Our role is simply to receive. He brings the outstretched arm, we bring the open hand. In verses 28 to 29, the people ask, what must we do to do the works of God? And it seems like they're thinking, how can we earn more signs? Uh, How do we get more miracles? Do we pray harder, fast longer, produce more spiritual intensity? No, Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Not works, plural, but work, singular. To trust Jesus. Everything flows from that. Our part is simply to receive what God freely and abundantly gives. He gives eternal life, life to the full. And that life is in his son. And his son is given to you. Christ is the food that endures to eternal life. But the crowd don't get it. Surely signs is what this is all about, Jesus. They want him to do the Moses trick of Exodus 16. Give us some of that sweet manna, the sweet bread. Apparently it tasted like honey and it was white, like coriander seeds. But actually they'd misunderstood what the manna in the desert was all about. That too was a sign. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 says... God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The manna was a sign to the people receiving it 3,000 years ago. It was a sign to the people who would read about it in Jesus' time, and it's a sign to us too. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And Jesus is the word from the mouth of the Lord, made flesh, given to the world for the life of the world. And so Jesus says to the crowd, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Man is not the active agent, God is. Beware of a ministry which is about a man's or woman's name and not about the God who gives all good things. And God didn't just give once upon a time, past tense. He gives present tense, always. Who does he give? What does he give? The bread of God, Jesus says, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, the crowd say, 
give us this bread always. That's their very best moment. That's a good response. Okay? Best thing these people say. Jesus answers, I am the bread of life. That's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted manna, signs and wonders. Yes, Jesus, no. Isaiah tells us there was nothing about Jesus' appearance that man should desire him. They could not see what was right before them, so preoccupied with God's things that they missed God. God with us. Ravi Zacharias has written a book called Jesus Among Other Gods, and he retells the story in that book of an expedition to Mount Everest that happened in 1996. Now, climbing Mount Everest is pretty dangerous work. And interestingly, people tend to get in trouble more on the way down from Everest than they do on the way up. And he tells a a story of a, a group that were climbing the mountain and got into trouble on the way down. One of their leaders, Harris, had stayed at the peak beyond the deadline. And on the descent, he became starved of oxygen. And Harris radioed in to home base to tell them about the situation, reporting that on his way down, he'd come across a case of oxygen cylinders, but that they were all empty and therefore no good to him. Now, the previous climbers who'd gone before him had left those oxygen cylinders and they knew that they were actually full. So on hearing the radio, they radioed into Harris and said, no, please, there is oxygen in those cylinders. Breathe it in, take it. But Harris insisted that they were empty. He had what we would call in the trade, hypoxic delirium, okay? He was just disorientated, couldn't think straight. The problem is that The lack of what he needed the most so disorientated him that even when surrounded by a life-giving supply of it, he continued to complain about its absence. Zachariah says, what oxygen is to the body, the bread of life is to the soul. You can fill up with a multitude of things. And we tend to do that all the time but true life is only found in Jesus. And Jesus is given. He is the bread that came down from heaven, given to us. All life flows from Jesus. He is the word in whom was life, and that life was the light of men, John says in John chapter one. There is no life without him. But those who come to him, those who want him, They will never be denied him, never cast away. The Father wants to draw you to come to him daily. God is with us in the person of Christ. He is God abundantly kind, God in every storm, God committed to keeping you, bringing you safe to shores. In these verses, again and again, you would have heard Gus read out the words of Jesus saying, he will raise you up at the last day. There will be a last day, the Bible says. A day of reckoning, a day of judgment, where every wrong will be righted. It's a good day. Injustice will be no more. 
and all storms will be silenced and all tears wiped away. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more hunger. Sin and death and evil, which conspires to corrupt everything, will be brought to nothing. God will be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15. And if God is all in all, then life will be all in all because God is life. And Jesus will raise up all who look to him or who receive God's abundant gift. Jesus is the living bread. So what does it mean to feed on him? Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It's a pretty shocking statement. Eating flesh and drinking blood is a bit hard to swallow. Excuse the pun. But to a Jewish audience, the outrage is dialed up tenfold. You see, the law, the Torah, forbids Jews to eat the blood of an animal because the life of an animal is in the blood and the life belongs to God. So blood should never be consumed. But here, Jesus is saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Why? So that the life of God may be in you. Now, this is not literal flesh-eating, blood-drinking, okay? Jesus is not prescribing cannibalism. Okay, Fleming Rutledge says, literal-mindedness is the enemy of biblical interpretation. A story in Kings... About King, a story about King David, rather, in 1 Chronicles chapter 11 helps us to understand this. See, there was a time when King David, Israel's greatest king, was at war with the Philistines, okay? And the Philistines had occupied his hometown, Bethlehem. And David had a very loyal army, and amongst them were three of his greatest warriors. And one day they overheard David saying wistfully, Oh, that someone would give me a drink from the well in Bethlehem. And these men, I mean, these are like England rugby players who got nothing on them. They were like, oh, okay then. So they burst through the Philistine garrisons and got a cup of water from the well in Bethlehem and brought it back to David to drink, taking him at his word. But when they presented it to him, David refuses to drink it because he said that to do so would be to drink the blood of these men who had risked their life for him he would not profit from their self-sacrifice. You see, the Bible interprets itself. When Jesus speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's talking about profiting from his self-sacrifice. On the cross, his body would be broken. His lifeblood poured out so that we might profit his life for ours. His fullness for our emptiness. His righteousness for our sin. He to be broken that we, the broken ones, would be made whole. Jesus gives us his life so that we might share in what is his. The abundant love of God in the union of Father, Son, and Spirit. To eat and to drink the Son of God is to believe in him. To look to him who died for you and who will raise you up at the last day. It is to trust him when he says, this is for you, take what is yours.
on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he was at another Passover meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he took bread and he took juice or wine and he lifted up the bread again and gave thanks just as he did on that mountain in Galilee. And he broke it. And, and he gave it to them again, distributing the bread freely. And said, this is my body, which is for you. And he took the cup. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And 24 hours later, he was on a cross and his disciples had all run away. He wasn't giving it on the basis of their faithfulness, but on his. The bread and the juice of communion speak a word to us. They tell us Christ is given. They tell us his sacrifice was for us. They tell us his resurrection is our future. And they tell us he is with us with every storm. Faith is simply the hand that takes the bread. It's simply the mouth that drinks the cup. The heart that says of Jesus, my Lord and my God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you. I thank you that you do not look from a distance upon us, but that you love us so much that you come amongst us, even in the chaos and the storms of life, promising, speaking, covenanting yourself to us to lead us through I thank you that you've given us everything in giving us Jesus. And I thank you that Jesus, we now, those who trust in you, are your body. So united to you that that is an apt metaphor. I thank you that we sang earlier that your life, your, your blood flows through our veins. And that's because your life flows through us. Because Jesus, you are the life of the eternal life that's been given to us. And so we just want to say, Lord, we love you. just want to say there's no one like you. I pray for everyone who feels life is so stormy that they would know for sure I am is with them and that they would leave, not afraid, but confident that you will lead them through, that you will be with them always to the very end of the age. Jesus, we look to you and we love you. Amen. <laughs>